the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fetka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. It's still what the hell is going on. Mark? More than ever. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump may or may not be in office in January, but this podcast will keep going and that name will be more and more appropriate every month as we go by. (laughs) It really really has been perfect. Uh, And what the hell are we talking about this week? Well, we're talking about the state of the election. We have a a president-elect declared by the media, not yet by the uh, Electoral College. Donald Trump is contesting the election, claiming voter fraud in a lot of states and in lots of irregularities, and uh, is refusing to concede the election. What is going on, Danny? Well, you know, while we were talking, I started looking at the numbers, and I got to say... I do not feel optimistic for the president's efforts in this regard. We're looking at about 55,000 votes that Joe Biden is ahead in Pennsylvania. We're looking at about 20,000 in Wisconsin. We're looking at about 14,000 in Georgia. So that's tight. And then he keeps mentioning Michigan as well, where I really think he's kind of stretching it. There, we're talking about close to 150,000 votes. Um, You know, then we go Arizona. I think there's some possibility Arizona is still very tight, 10, 12,000 votes. But, you know, in all of the lawsuits that the president's lawyers and his unbelievably ill-chosen representative, Rudy Giuliani, All of the details that they've presented are talking about hundreds. We're not talking even about Arizona numbers, let alone Michigan numbers. So, you know, do you think it's a feckless effort, Mark? Well, first of all, I think that he's got every right to pursue it and uh, he should pursue whatever legal remedies he has. I don't doubt that there is voter fraud. I always bring up my Rumsfeld's rules, but one of Rumsfeld's rules is the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. That, you know, the fact that we didn't have evidence of a North Korean nuclear program for years didn't mean the North Koreans weren't building nuclear weapons. And it's the same thing with voter fraud. The fact that we don't have evidence of voter fraud doesn't mean that people were counting ballots that shouldn't have been counted. I think it's less likely that there was this concerted effort to stuff tens of thousands of ballots than there were people who were accepting mail-in ballots that under the law should not be counted because the signature didn't match. We have these issues with the signature counting machine in in Nevada that was set too low for a comparison stake. Mail-in ballots have a very high failure rate because people fill them out incorrectly or they send them in too late. So it'll be interesting to me what the rejection rate for mail-in ballots was in all of these states, because if it's inordinately low, What that means, and at a time when it actually should be higher than normal, because a lot of states were doing an experiment in these kind of mail-in votes, that would be a signal that a lot of ballots were being taken that shouldn't have been taken. And that's not voter fraud in the sense of people filling out fake ballots, stuffing ballot boxes, the other rest, but accepting a ballot, if you're an election worker, accepting a ballot that shouldn't have been counted because the signature didn't match or didn't meet the state guidelines is a form of voter fraud. Okay, but Mark, 
I mean, we repeatedly make the point that this is a nation of laws. And we've also made the point, I think importantly, that the media doesn't call this election. The states and the electoral college call this election and an extremist, the House of Representatives calls this election. So fair and good, we haven't, but in, in the same way, our persuasive arguments, whether on our own podcast or on Fox News or in the White House briefing room, are not what is dispositive. What's dispositive is the lawsuit that you bring that provides the proof behind the accusation that there was fraud. And the problem but here it's very is that hard those, to prove, Danny. But, That's but, the but, point. Fair enough. But if it's very hard to prove, and it's going to be an uphill battle for Donald Trump to prove it then guess what? He's lost the election. So you well, know, I'm not saying what are you trying to say? Election, I'm not saying he's going to win the election. He's going to turn this around. I think it's, it's nearly impossible to turn around tens of thousands of votes in a single state, much less in three states, which he needs to win. However, we should get to the bottom of whether people weren't following the law. You say we're a nation of laws. I agree with you. Well, the law of Pennsylvania is that a ballot has to be in by 8 p.m. on election day or it doesn't get counted, period. That's what the law of the state legislature passed says, and the state legislature has the has the final say. The law is passed by the legislature, signed by the governor. The, the Supreme Court of the state suddenly decides, well, we're going to count them for three more days. And oh, by the way, if the postmark is smudged, we're just going to presume that they were uh, postmarked in time. We don't believe in judicial activism where, where judges rewrite the laws. So no, you know, there's true. a lot of these states that were changing laws at the last minute. And then I don't doubt at all that there were people who were counting ballots who were taking ballots that shouldn't have been counted because they didn't meet the criteria. But even if you don't doubt that, and I agree with you, I'm certain that there is electoral fraud because we've seen, you know, cases that have been listed where, you know, election officials in in Arizona, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere have gone to prison. So, in fact, we know that there was- A judge in Philadelphia was just convicted of election fraud in the city where a lot of these things are getting counted. It's just not going to be enough to turn around the result. Bingo. Look, I guess if I had the feeling that the president was litigating this in defense of voter rights and in in the hope of writing this system for the next candidate, I would be a lot more comfortable. The message from him is not people are stealing your voice. The message from him is I won. I'm a sore loser. I'm going to stomp my feet until this happens and I'm going to behave inappropriately in denying to my adversary, you know, the right to prepare should he end up being the winner. So two things on that. Number one, if he got 72 million votes, so he is defending the rights of the people who voted for him. Two, he's got every legal right to pursue this. Even President Bush, who said gave a very gracious message conceding that Joe Biden was the president-elect, as I do, and is, is going to be inaugurated in all in all in 99.9% certainty in January. The president has every right to pursue recounts and legal action and all the rest of it. This hysteria about how the transition is, uh, he's endangering the country and being petulant and all the rest of it. I'm sorry, but you know, the Bush team, transition team was in a private office in McLean until mid-December. We're very early in the process. If we're in January and we're still in this, in this held off, I, I'll agree with you that there's a problem, but he's got time. There's no rush to get through this. Eventually, he's going to get to the point where it is clear that Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated and he needs to have a strategy for how to, I mean, he needs to be the president of all Americans and concede the election or at least accept that Joe Biden is going to be president, cooperate with the transition, attend his inauguration and live to fight another day because he can run in four more years. 
Right. But I think he runs the risk of screwing this up by failing to stand up for other people who actually do have a chance at victory in Georgia in particular. If he's so inwardly turned and so focused on only himself and his own fortunes and unwilling to go and lobby and and, uh, rally for the two senators who are going to be facing a runoff in Georgia in January, then that's going to be a black mark against him in 2024. Oh, I agree with you, but I don't see any sign that he's not going to do that. If I was giving him advice, here's what I would tell him. Number one, pursue your legal challenges because you have every right to do them. And when the courts decide, then accept their judgment and move on. Second of all, cooperate with the Biden transition team. Give him the PDB. If for no other reason than it's been in the news recently, Andy Carr pointed out that the 9-11 Commission, one of the things that they cited about why we weren't prepared for the attack was the delayed presidential transition. If there's an attack on Biden's watch, he doesn't want to give him any excuse to blame him for having hurt our national security during the transition. So it's in his own self-interest to cooperate. And then three, once it's decided, invite Biden to the White House. He doesn't have to concede the election. He can continue to claim that he thinks he won. But for the good of the country, we're going to have a transition and he's going to cooperate with it. And then he can announce that he's running in 2024, even before the inauguration, because it sounds like he plans to run. And then go to Georgia and rally the people of Georgia to preserve the Republican Senate and go out on a victory, go out on a win. That he's, He brought his base out. He you know, flexed his political muscles, brought out his base, saved the Republican majority in the Senate, and do it on the basis not of grievance over the last election, but the fact that when I win in four years, I'm not going to be able to undo the damage these people did if they get the majority and get rid of the filibuster and pass all this radical socialist legislation. So I need you to give me give us a Senate majority so that we can save the country and hold on until I come back and win in four years. That's what his message should be. Well, as we say in my family, from your mouth to his ears, one of the states that the president is contesting is Wisconsin. And we have just the person to come on and talk about it, a former presidential candidate himself, a former governor of Wisconsin for two terms, and someone who has, you know, who has been pretty vocal in talking about how recounts work in his own state, what the president's prospects are. I have a ton of respect for Governor Scott Walker. He is now the president of the Young Americas Foundation, which is a wonderful organization that I know you've been involved with as well, Mark. So let's go to our conversation with Governor Walker. Well, Governor, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be with you guys. So the president has uh, asked for a recount in, in Wisconsin. Does he have a chance of turning the state around? Yes, but it's a high hurdle. And by that, the advice I've given talking to the vice president and to the president's team is be ready for a recount, but wait for the canvases. What I mean by that is every one of the 72 counties has to do a canvas within 14 days of the election. And then on December 1st, there's a statewide canvas at which point they certify the votes. If that gap narrows from just under 21,000 votes, then I'd say absolutely. He's legally within his rights to have a recall right now. He's less than 1% of the margin between him and, and Joe Biden. But if it doesn't narrow, I'd tell you in the past, in recent Wisconsin history, recounts change hundreds, not thousands of votes. And it's only happened a couple of times. What he really needs to have is some sort of an error or miscalculation I narrow that gap, and then that would make a recall worthwhile. So, Governor, I, I saw you on Twitter, you know, come out right at the beginning when some of the vote counts weren't even finished in, in Pennsylvania and in Georgia, and you were pretty 
discouraging. I mean, if you were sitting in the Oval with President Trump and you were looking at the numbers he's looking at, hair above 20,000 in Wisconsin, but then we're looking at pretty substantial numbers in, in places like Pennsylvania and in Michigan, what would you be saying to him? Well, early on, part of the reason why I signaled that both on Twitter and in private conversations was in Wisconsin, legally, you can have a recount if the margin is less than 1%, which it is. But if it's over one quarter of 1%, the losing campaign or the egregious campaign has to pay for it, which is about $3 million. And my view at that time and still is now is that it's really not worth pursuing Wisconsin if you don't think you have a shot in places like Arizona, Georgia, and maybe Pennsylvania. I felt all along that Arizona and Georgia were two of the states he had to win, and then it would come down to a Big Ten state. It would be Pennsylvania, Michigan, or, or Wisconsin, uh, one of those three, assuming he had the rest of the map intact, uh, which he largely has. But uh, we see the hand recount going forward in Georgia. Doug Ducey has repeatedly talked to me since Election Day about how he thought the margin was narrowing and that the right percentage of votes were still in play to make it possible, not necessarily likely, but possible in Arizona. And so that's why I said, don't write it off, but don't assume that that's going to make or break the election. I actually think after having talked to some more folks today, that there's still a realistic, again, not whether it's likely or not remains to be seen, but a realistic shot if the courts and where I thought Justice Alito was brilliant in the order to set aside the ballots that came in after the election day. Remember, the U.S. Supreme Court chose to act in Wisconsin's case and say the ruling of a federal judge to say ballots could come in after the election wasn't good. They knocked that down. They didn't do the same in Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Court had made the ruling. And Chief Justice Roberts' argument was that they were going to defer to the state's and not to the federal government in this case, which is why it seemed like an inconsistent argument. But by uh, Justice Alito setting those ballots aside, the benefit there is, uh, I still think if you go back and you, and I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyers I talked to, if you look at the Bush v. Gore ruling in Florida, uh, equal protection, the argument in Pennsylvania is that the legislature is the one via the Constitution that sets the guidelines in terms of presidential electors, not this court, even if it's the state Supreme Court. So I think there's a chance uh, that decision could go right. And then there's a follow-up chance in terms of the rulings they made in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia that put other parts of the state at a disadvantage. Whether or not there's a remedy, uh, we'll wait and see. But I do think it's completely legitimate. If we go back 20 years and think Al Gore took 37 days before he publicly conceded, on December 13th. I think it's, there's absolutely no reason why this president shouldn't give some time and consideration to doing what they're apparently going to be doing, and that's issuing these lawsuits. So here's, you know, the president keeps talking about voter fraud. And one of the problems with mail-in ballots is that they're much more less reliable than in-person voting, right? So people don't, the signature doesn't match, they fill out the ballot wrong, they don't get the witness, uh, they send it too late and it comes in. There's a whole yeah. host of reasons why, you know, there was an MIT study that in the 2008 election, about 3% of mail-in ballots were discounted. And, you know, in the 2016 election, there've been some reports that it was about 1%. Is there a valid concern that states were disregarding the rules as far as what ballots should be counted and what shouldn't be counted. And that, in a way, even that's different than votes and stuffing ballots right. and coming up with big right. ballots, but it's a form of voter fraud, isn't it? 
It really is because the rules are the rules. And this is where a number of these battles, even if they don't end up changing the outcome of this election, it is worthwhile uh, to go down this path because you need to have a clear precedent for future elections. The Elections Commission in a given state, and I've heard about other states where they've done this, can't just say, well, we're going to accept absentee ballots. We're going to call in people and tell them we'll change if they didn't put their signature address or the address of a witness on. If the state law, if the statute itself says you cannot change ballots uh, once they've been submitted as absentee ballots, and that's one of the complaints out there. Of course, the problem, and you guys can, can relate and understand this too, is I tell people all the time, we need to document this, whether it's in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, wherever else, we need to document it. If it can help the president, great. But either way, we need to document it to make sure that either through the courts or through state laws in, in the state legislature, that these things get corrected going forward. The problem, of course, in most of these cases is what's the remedy? In my state's a good example. There have been concerns about absentee ballots where, at least in one instance, a poll worker said people filled in the addresses, which would appear to be in, in conflict uh, with the statutory language. The problem is the remedy is, in Wisconsin at least, and I think most states, once an absentee ballot's been checked in, they open up the envelope, they take it out, they put the ballot through the machine, and then, understandably so, because you want to vote in secret, you don't want somebody in the government to be able to track your vote. We can see with AOC's tweets why you don't want somebody to know who you voted for. The fact of the matter is it's in the abyss. You know, it's like putting a droplet into Lake Michigan. Uh, how do you distinguish between votes that came in from an absentee ballot and those that did, unless you're able to do what Alito ordered in the state of Pennsylvania? That's really, I think, going to be the biggest problem in all this is even if there are documented cases here, not just fraud, like you say, stuff in the mailbox uh, or stuff in the ballot box, rather, could be mailbox too in this case, but actually just not following the rules and the statutes correctly, uh, the problem with all this, where's the remedy? How do you do something short of ordering an entire new vote in that jurisdiction or in that state, which is unprecedented? So a lot of the challenge for a lot of people right now is this feeling that you don't know what's going on. You really can't believe what you read in the New York Times or on the Washington Post because they've just totally given up any semblance of, of actual reporting. You know, I now regularly see on Twitter reporters saying, so-and-so parroted Trump's lies. And it's like, you know, that's not what I call reporting. But one of the themes that seems absolutely clear, even from, you know, from Jim Garrity at National Review, who writes about this pretty often, is that the complaints the president and his allies are making about voter fraud and about systemic problems on the state level don't match up to the lawsuits that are being filed, that the lawsuits being filed are much more small ball, you know, much less sort of big conspiracy. You know, you as a, as a former governor, but also as an influential Republican and as somebody who is, I hope, going to return to political life someday, what do you think this does to the system and how do you see it all? Yeah, well, on your latter point, the good news is I'm a quarter century younger than Joe Biden, so I got plenty of time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but on, the, on the more important issues you're talking about, well, one, I, I think for not only for the president's sake, and uh, like a lot of people I know, I was suspect of the president four and a half, five years ago. I got to say, and, and I loved, Mark, your column about 
if you put him on mute, he's one of the best presidents in the history of this country in terms of substance. I mean, this guy's done remarkable things for this country. So for him and the vice president alone, it's worth fighting. But, but I think particularly, not just for his supporters, of which I include myself, but for particularly for people who came out of the woodwork, who never voted before, who hadn't voted for years, who felt ignored, uh, but who re-engaged because of this president, his willingness to listen to the forgotten men and women of this country, we absolutely positively have to stay uh, engaged in this battle, even if it doesn't ultimately end up the way that many of us would, would like in terms of the final outcome. One, we've got to show that we're willing to fight. And secondly, I think we have to root out not only things where there's a remedy, that's the part that helps you get closer towards uh, having a win, but also areas where there are concerns to fix for the future. Otherwise, a lot of these people, first-time voters or people who've come back after years of absence, are just going to blow off future elections. And, and that's not good for those of us who are conservatives that they voted for, but it's also just not good for society. I, I give you a good example. To me, I think it's absurd whether or not they were engaged in corruption or not, I don't know. But it's absurd to think that in places like Detroit or Philadelphia, they were putting plywood over the windows. If anything, they should have been letting the media in and as many observers in from the various parties and campaigns as possible so that in a tight election, people could see exactly what's happening. Uh, if you want to have legitimacy, no matter who wins, uh, you need to have transparency. And to the extent that there wasn't transparency in many of these places, I think that's a problem. I also think the other part is nationwide. I assume I'm in agreement with you guys on this. I do not want a nationwide voting system. I don't want federal requirements. What I do think is worth pushing for is for the states, and they could do this through a compact or some other sort of agreement, the states to still be in charge, uh, but find some sort of way to have some common areas where, where they have uh, basic standards that they try and meet and agree to. Again, completely sovereign to the states, but then, and I'm not a big spender, but this is an area where I'd be willing to spend money, put some resources at the state and even at the federal level, even if it's no strings attached, to make sure that we have more accurate reporting and that these jurisdictions can actually count these votes and have them and not be waiting a week to 10 days later to find out who really won an election. Well, also, we just conducted a nationwide experiment in mail-in voting on the scale that's never been tried before yet. I think 100 million early votes, 65 million of them uh, were mail-in. That's more than double what's ever been done before in terms of mail-in voting. And because of the pandemic, you had all these states changing the rules in the middle of the game, you know, and not even appropriately, like, in, like as you mentioned in Pennsylvania, where the state legislature, you know, all of a sudden they're counting votes that arrive for three days when the state law says it has to be in by 8 p.m., you know, right. so there's, there's a lot of shenanigans going on that might not necessarily be enough to flip the election, but they shouldn't be happening. And, and just for the sake of our democracy, uh, we ought to know what happened, how many votes were counted that shouldn't have been counted, and learn from this experience so we don't have this controversy four years from now. If we don't, we will lose major portions of the Trump electorate and we will deserve it. We will deserve to lose those votes because it'll be outrageous in their mind, and I think they'll be right, that we'll learn nothing from it. And the president was right. The, the media and many others mocked him for months when he talked about the sham that was out there. And I pointed out, Mark, you and I might even specifically talked about this, and I remember right, but people ask, in Wisconsin's case, we had one of the first elections uh, in the midst of this global pandemic, April 7th. 
uh, we had a spring election for the state Supreme Court and local offices. The left went wild. They made a major push for, uh, in our case, we have open-ended absentee balloting uh, without reason to vote by mail. And then they said people are going to die if you vote in person. Well, one, they didn't. A number of reports came out and said there was no documented spike. But the irony was that it was in cities like Milwaukee and Madison, Green Bay, where they had the biggest backlogs and waiting lines, all three Democrat mayor cities. And in Milwaukee in particular, it was a city where they had 180 voting locations. And the mayor of that city narrowed it down to just five because he was stubborn and and claimed he didn't have enough poll workers, even though the National Guard offered to be engaged there. Well, we knew that there were problems because it wasn't just our reports. Many of the media reports from the local newspaper of people complaining who were standing in line feeling like, you know, why am I standing in line here in the middle of a pandemic, were people who said they'd sent in their absentee ballots weeks before, or the request, I should say, but didn't get them. And so you had a system where the city of Milwaukee screwed up even getting them the ballots in the first place and forced them to vote in person. I said then, if they can't even get a small number of people for a small spring election in play, all these states that are just trying to do it, force it to every possible eligible voter are going to have major problems. And my understanding is every one of the major uh, industrialized nations in the world, all of our allies have same-day voting that gotten rid of or don't have ballots by mail. I think we should go back to something close to that, maybe just allowing absentee for shut-ins and places like that, because it is a huge problem and it's only going to get worse going forward. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Let me ask you a question about the transition. So, you know, obviously the president hasn't conceded. Vice President Biden has declared that he is the victor. The networks have declared, although the Electoral College hasn't met, and some of the states are obviously being recounted. Now, if it were I, I would say very bluntly, you know, I believe that, that this election has not been decided, but I also recognize there's a question out there and there is a possibility that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won. And therefore, I am going to accord them all the courtesies of a transition, even as I pursue my legal remedies. That is not what Donald Trump is doing. For me, I feel I'm, I'm leading the witness here. I feel, like that's a mis- <laughs> I feel like that's a big mistake. It makes him look like a sore loser. Yes, you're right. He has to stand up for all those people and the, and the meaning of their votes. At the same time, we have a system and, you know, it requires a certain, <laughs> a certain decorum, <laughs> to, she said laughing. What do you think? Well, I think you can have a parallel universe in the sense I get before the election and I was one of the people who defended the president when they would ask these ridiculous questions about, you know, will you concede? Will you allow a transfer of power if this happened? And I came out and said, well, this is before the election. I said, well, no candidate is ever, unless you're just in a losing proposition to begin with, but nobody's in a competitive race is ever going to talk to you about what they would do if they lose. You're always going to talk about winning. You want, you know, it's just a, like a duh moment. So I just said the press was ridiculous. Nobody asked Hillary Clinton four years ago that question, or should they have? But now that the election's over, I do think it makes some sense to say, yeah, you can live in a dual universe. You can continue to push, not just for the sake of pushing, but push with uh, a real intent uh, of uh, trying to get the their last remaining votes you need to get to the 270 or more and these various states that we're talking about, and still say, hey, we're going to free up access to, say, office space for a transition committee. We're going to 
allow former Vice President Biden to get the presidential daily brief. I, I think those are things that are completely legitimate and do not undermine your case. Because remember, somebody this morning said this to me, they were in one of the shows a couple of days ago, and they pointed out that the media doesn't call the election, the Electoral College does. Uh, and ultimately, in, in the most extreme of cases, the Congress, uh, in terms of what, what votes they accept. And he said that this one of the anchors looked at him like dumbfounded, like either she was so full of herself that thought the media did, or literally didn't know uh, that the media doesn't actually call the election. So, you know, we're past the election. There's no more votes being cast. So the worry that somehow this would affect uh, electors doesn't have an impact. I, I think he can make his argument and still allow for things, you know, should their efforts not be successful. To me, being able to get access to those basic things, because otherwise, remember, the, the argument I made about 20 years ago is what Al Gore did didn't stop George W. Bush from being president. And that's accurate. It didn't stop the transition and had things not gone Bush's way, Gore would have wanted to have been fine, but, but they didn't, thankfully. And uh, Governor Bush became President Bush. But that 37-day process didn't stop him from preparing. Uh, it may have taken a little bit of his focus off for a while, but, but the transition kicked in, uh, just like Joe Biden is capable of doing. And I think it's right for this president administration to allow him access to the things that once sure if he is the president, that at least he has the basis to start. I think a lot of this is just hysterical. I mean, the election was, you know, a little less than two weeks ago or just two weeks ago. Uh, my wife worked in the Bush transition and she was in an office in McLean, privately funded office in McLean until mid-December. You know, we're, we're, we're right. very early on in this process. So the idea that somehow he's, uh, he's holding up the, the proper functioning of government in some way or hurting the country is ridiculous at this point. But, well, and these, let, are the, these are the same people that haven't pushed back at Hillary Clinton who you know, spent the last four years contesting the election, <laughs> uh, at least rhetorically, or, sure. or someone literally, you know, like the would-be governor of, of Georgia, who somehow Stacey Abrams thinks she's still the governor and, and never officially <laughs> conceded. So, you know, the bottom line is the electors, or, or in the case of governor, the actual citizens voting get to determine that, not the media, not the pundits, uh, those individuals. But I do think it makes some sense to, to avail themselves, like I said, the basic things like access to the presidential daily briefing. So uh, even though the vice president was vice president, he doesn't have access to information right now. He should. Yep. But here's the question for you. And this is my exit question. So the odds against the president actually overturning this election for a lot of the reasons we've discussed are very, are very slim that he will be able to do it just because even if there was fraud or shenanigans, it's very hard to prove after the fact. You have to lawyer up and sort of get the process at the front end before they can put the ballots into the ether and so on and so forth. So even if there was fraud, it's going to be very hard for him to prove it. You know, he we're not sure he ever will concede. Will he show up at Biden's inaugural? Will he welcome him to the White House? Will he cooperate with the transition once it's official? What's your advice for the president on how we should handle this? Because he, unlike previous presidents who've lost elections recently, actually could run in 2024. He's right. still eligible, and I think he's probably likely to run in 2024 if, if he uh, leaves the White House now. What's your advice for him going forward in the way, best way to preserve his political interests? I think uh, I get that he's a fighter. And to me, fight, you know, go through the process. I'm not telling him to concede or, or back away from these lawsuits, but absolutely once, and we'll know, we'll obviously know about a month before the time that the inaugural is held. We'll know because the electors will have met the vote and assuming that's all done. Uh, he should absolutely do those things. He should welcome 
the new president, and if Joe Biden is the new president, he should be at the inauguration. But most importantly, aside from some of the official duties, I think, as the vice president is going to do next week, he should go and park himself in Georgia. And to me, one of the most optimistic pieces of information out there uh, that we could look to to see is the idea, as you said, that he he is very seriously talking about running again in 2024 if he isn't successful in this regard. I think that's the ultimate check. If I'm him, I push, I push, I push. And then if there's no other options, I concede. But for him to have a victory in Georgia, for him to be able to take responsibility, even if it's not solely him, but if he's down there campaigning, ginning up his base, saying, if you're mad about what happened, the first step in reclaiming this is making sure we have a Republican Senate, people who are going to uphold the things we fought for over the last four years. I think that's a big, big deal uh, for him having any shot of coming back and, and running four years from now and being successful. Amen. I think that's very wise counsel. You've been awesome. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to, to talk to us. You know, I think I, I think you've given I've, you've given the president wise advice. I hope he I hope he heeds it, and uh, I, I hope he heeds it for his own sake as well as for the sake of the the party that, in many ways, he's transformed, delivered you know an incredible result in this very complex election. So um, rather than being bitter, the right answer is to you know is kind of move forward and you know fight with optimism. Uh, and I hope he does it. And the last part of that is the. I firmly believe this president loves America and more than just America. I believe he loves the American people. And so to the extent that he's going to do that, it's not going to be because Washington wants him to, or the elite wants him to, or, you know, the people in the capital city want him to. It's going to be because he recognizes that this is the best thing. If it is, if, if there's no other option going forward for now, it's the best thing for the American people and that he can come back later, four years later, maybe in, make the case to, to help them yet again. Because I genuinely believe, regardless of what you think about his content uh, or his text messages, his tone, whatever, the bottom line is this is a guy who loves America. And if he thinks this is in the best interest of the American people, I think that's what will sway him more than anything else. Well said. Thanks, Thanks a ton. Thank you My so pleasure. much for joining us. Take care. All right, Danny, what do you have to say? So the one thing that we didn't talk about either in the intro or with Scott Walker is something that we just aren't hearing anything about these days. I don't understand. Why did the Russians not deliver the election for Donald Trump? <laughs> that is very funny. Or the Iranians for, uh, maybe the Iranians delivered it for Joe Biden this time. They just outdid them. The Iranians or the Chinese. But I mean, honestly, <laughs> You know that if those 150,000 votes or so had gone the other way and Donald Trump had won, the only thing we would be hearing is about how the Russians manipulated the election and delivered him another term. And yet now it's all just moot. It's just boring. It's old news. You know, it's funny. Number one, the reason they didn't is one, I don't necessarily think they wanted Donald Trump to win another term because if, if you were Vladimir Putin and you bet on Donald Trump as being better for Russia, it backfired on you big time because from getting NATO to spend more money to imposing sanctions to pulling out of the INF treaty to you, we've gone over the list on this podcast before. This has not been a good four years for Russia. But two, he also, he launched a cyber attack on Russia in 2018 when they tried to interfere with that election. He's been pretty on the Russians for electoral interference. But here's the thing that I find 
ironic is the nice way of putting it, hypocritical would be a little bit stronger, is all these people out there saying Donald Trump won't accept the legitimacy of, of Joe Biden's election. Excuse me? I mean, for four years, they wouldn't accept the legitimacy of Donald Trump's election. They, they peddled this Russia, consp- this Russia collusion conspiracy theory. We spent tens of millions of dollars, the Mueller probe. They had the entrapment of Flynn, who's a terrible choice for national security advisor, but should have never been interviewed. Then the impeachment, then everything else. And all of a sudden, Donald Trump won't accept the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election. How horrible. You know, these people didn't accept the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. They still don't accept the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. Uh, it's a little rich for my ears. I will tell you, you know, we, we talked last week about some of the biggest losers of this election. And, you know, pollsters are, are the obvious one. But I have to tell you, as somebody who's lived in Washington for more than 35 years, as somebody who used to be a journalist, as someone who really has many journalists and editorial page editors and writers uh, among my friends, yourself included, I think the press is a disgrace. I really do. The, when I look at what I see reporters, reporters saying about this election and saying about the various candidates, it is to me, it's not Soviet because we haven't gotten quite that bad yet, but it is becoming close to Soviet. You know, I got a, a friend shared an email. Are she you got, saying the media is the enemy of the people, Danny? No, I think think the media is intended to be the friend of the people. The problem is that the media has abdicated its responsibility. I got a a friend of mine shared an email with me. Actually, I'll read part of it to you because you will, A, agree wholeheartedly. The most sinister, anti-democratic, and genuinely disturbing development of this election Trump is the only middle finger ordinary Americans had available to raise at the preening left liberal establishment, which holds that they are all racists and their national sentiment contemptible. Trump was never an authoritarian. He doesn't control the military, the media, the judiciary, or a mass movement in the streets. He's never disobeyed a court ruling. The real danger of US authoritarianism comes from the alliance of political power in Biden, the Democrats with the financial power in big tech, media power in social and mainstream media, and cultural power in Hollywood. They share ugly, coercive conformism. I thought that was a great note. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, mean, case in point, we never even got a chance to talk about it because it happened, it just came out right before the election. Anonymous. Oh my God, the New York Times published this piece that was supposed to be a senior Trump administration official. People were speculating that it might be Vice President Pence because he used the word lodestar, which is like a frequent Pence word. That's how high people thought it was. And it was some mid-level guy in the Department of Homeland Security. And the New York Times called him a senior administration official. So it makes you wonder, all those stories quoting senior administration officials that look bad for Donald Trump, were they mid-level staffers in the Homeland Security Department or some such? It's just one example, and it's, you know, it's water under the bridge, but would anyone have cared about the anonymous piece if they'd put his name on it? Of course not. It's the tip of the iceberg of what's happening in the media today. The biased coverage against Trump, they're so driven by their Trump derangement that they can't report objectively anymore. It's really, really pathetic. It's sad for our country. We probably should do a podcast on the media. But next week, we're returning to the question of COVID, which is (laughs) once again rearing its ugly head, although without the frenzied news alerts and attention that we got under Trump, because it soon will no longer be his fault that every person 
that gets it and dies is dead. And he rightly predicted they're going to lock us down again, it sounds like, because they're trying to lock us down one more time. But the good news is we've got a vaccine, at least one and more coming. But we can't give Trump credit for that. (laughs) Operation Warp Speed never happened. Just magically appeared as soon as Biden, literally like magic, as soon as Biden was elected, we got a vaccine. That's how good he is. (laughs) <laughs> and, and now, having entered the having entered the ranting section of our podcast, it's probably time for us to say thanks for listening. Send all of your complaints about Mark to Mark. Send all flattery about everything good that we do to me. And if you have any technological complaints, Olivia is standing in for Alexa this week. Send them to her. Next and week. tune in for another episode of Rantomatic next week. <laughs> what the hell is going on? And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.